0: there's any denying that we are in a moment of exuberance and and this conversation is about how do we make this not just about the exuberance but actually about a moment of enduring gains and and so I think it's really important to reflect on both of those things Um, I think we've all known you know just being here you can feel the energy you can see with the numbers Akenda just mentioned that last year we raised um, five billion dollars for Africa Well, actually in 2019 um, that number was only 1.1. So, so it's actually grown really quickly. And what was interesting, in 2019, it took African companies 46 weeks to get to that first billion dollars of raise. And last year, um, it took, I can't remember now, the exact number It was 21 weeks, right? And this, this year, seven weeks to get to the first billion dollars. And so the prediction for this year, nobody really knows how high we'll go, but already the prediction's over seven. And, and so there's clearly exuberance in fundraising, but what's fundraising? Fundraising is just a statement of what you think the potential of something is. It's not actually a statement of actuality and reality of um, you know, actually building something real and lasting. And so I'm really pleased to have a panel of people who are building really long-lasting things on this continent um, and really capacity building, not just for the moment, but actually for the century and for the century beyond. So we've got Ms. Aneo, who's um, Shift Energy Solutions, who's really building for sustainable energy and chose the, most, the easiest place in the world to start that conversation in, in Lagos, in Nigeria. We've got Mr. Lubega, who's building in uh, the learning space, who's really capacity building, as we've seen he's doing with the Harambian labs. And then we have Mr. Matshoba, who everyone knows because we've all been paying with Yoko. And he's made life much easier for many of us who have to do business across continents. And so, really, when it comes to capacity building, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys is, you could have chosen any business, right, to start across the continent. There's so many problems to solve, so many opportunities. So the first question, um, and I, I guess I'll start with Mr. Lubea, but I'd like to ask each of you, is, is why did you choose the business that you chose? And and sort of what about it for you is something that's going to make this an enduring
1: story? I know Jonathan said the mics work when you speak into them, so I was just a bit doubting there for a moment. But thank you, um, Saint Shah, for for I think introducing us in such a way. When I think about education, and I think many of us have gone to very good schools. I always reflect on the Harambians, always speak about the schools they went to. I'm just like, are there any other schools outside of the Ivy Leagues of the world? But education is one of the most powerful tools you can use to transform your circumstance. And so so by investing in education, what you can do is really outside. And for us, the premise was there's phenomenal education happening in South Africa, and the U.S., and around the world. And our premise was how do we lower the barriers to high-quality professional learning? And by doing so, even though finally we employ only 400 people, we impact 4 million on a daily basis. And so being able to have that scale, really enthused me when I was thinking about studies and where to actually apply myself to a problem. And I was thinking through that impact. But I think to your question around the exuberance around education, um, so education's interesting. It's like education's very attractive, but people struggle to get hard venture capital into education from a return perspective. But ultimately, the exuberance in the space has been around expectation. And I would, not to preempt the question, but almost reflect on... What expectations have informed that exuberance that we're experiencing in the market today? And what can we do as ecosystem partners, investors, founders, builders, to actually exceed that expectation? And that's something I reflect on quite often in our work.
2: That's
1: great. Excellent.
2: You know, um, as you mentioned, I chose a market uh, to get started with Shift Power Solutions that at the time, if you ask people, you know, 10 years ago, should you start an energy venture in Nigeria? <laughs> Coming from working in regulatory affairs at Exxon, uh, you'd say no. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I think I recognize we needed to draw attention to is that you will not see growing middle-class societies. You will not see industrialization. We will not see schools with internet. We will not see people using power to uh, to provide Factories and uh, tech driven agriculture, if we cannot address fundamentally the power issues that we face in Africa. And one of the things I recognize, and is actually a core value of our company, is that we wanted to take on challenges that other people thought were impossible, um, but were necessary. Uh, I was talking, I was having a conversation yesterday. Uh, about the power concerns across the continent and how many people are really thinking about the future of energy and taking on these challenges. If you look at a market like Nigeria, for it to reach the power per million people that a country, a developing country, even like Brazil has, we would need to more than 12x our capacity today. But with our population growth, we need to do 20x that in the next 10 years, just to get to an emerging economy like even Brazil. And so you really needed people who are subject matter experts. I was sitting at Stanford School of Engineering PhD program saying, who here is thinking about what the future of energy looks like, right? We're seeing a lot of innovation, but it's being applied in things that are necessary, but aren't transforming economies. Cook stoves, solar lanterns, all that's incredibly important. But you don't transform an economy that way. And so SHIFT really started thinking about how do we think about leapfrogging not only in fintech, not only in healthcare, but in the power sector. And now is the time. We don't want to be in a predicament that the Americas and part of Europe's in, where we're now thinking about how do we maintain and retrofit aging infrastructure, centralized infrastructure, and it's a problem. We have an opportunity to do things right, and that's exactly what SHIFT is doing.
0: Amazing.
2: And I guess you you probably sort of
0: you know, had that advantage, too, of like, you, wouldn't have, you weren't working with a legacy infrastructure, Mr. <laughs> but like, tell us why you chose to get into it.
3: Yeah, so I think in terms of like, Yoko, it's like super interesting. So I think a lot of it came from the fact that we're in South Africa, which is such an unequal society. And when we sort of looked at, uh, at the space we wanted to go into, it had a lot to do with entrepreneurship and the role that we believe entrepreneurship plays and creating a more decentralized economy. So the reality is that when you have a lot of small businesses in the economy, people tend to spend money around where they live. And you'll never have a balanced economic situation in a society if all the wealth is concentrated. And small businesses help to break that down because the consumption happens much closer to where actually everybody else is purchasing. So this was part of, for us, like part of the thesis around why we thought that this business could be an important business and why we wanted to back small business. And also because the alternative is not so great. Um, You can end up with a highly concentrated society where, you know, drones are flying around, Amazon delivers everything to everyone because small businesses literally just couldn't compete. And that isn't necessarily the world that we thought was... What we wanted to believe in as uh, as people. Um, so yeah, that was really for us became like the underpinning of why we got into this industry, um, and we sort of captured in this idea of like how do we enable people to thrive, and for us, it's through small business.
0: Amazing, and small business is going to be what really solves Africa's problems, and we know that. Um, we talked, we heard about the informal sector earlier today, and and you know, I, I think about as you start growing businesses. What are the structures you need to put in place? Because when you're a small business, if you fail, you're impacting yourself and maybe your family. Um, As you get larger and larger, you're impacting hundreds, maybe thousands of people um, in your supply chain and your employee base. Um, I had uh, an experience, which I'll happily share here, in the spirit of being vulnerable, um, where I grew a business from 0 to $20 million in South Africa. Um, And it was the first KYC business um, in, in the world that was being built as a utility with many of the South African banks. And um, we created 700 jobs from that business within two years. And then I spent the next year shutting that business down um, because we couldn't find a way to to scale it um, from where it was. And we built it in a way that wasn't sustainable. Um, And so, you know, going the hardest part of that shutdown for me was, was not talking to clients or having to actually deal with the sort of consequences of that was actually thinking about the 700 lives, right, of people who had now committed and signed on Um, with me who'd sort of ridden this journey with me and then how do you actually go to those people. And and we were able to pivot 350 of them into other roles, but actually 350 of them didn't um, sort of, we weren't able to find other jobs for them in the company. They've all found, luckily, (laughs) something else outside. But these are the real impacts, right, of when you're running a business and you start to scale, you have to start thinking about when things do hit you hard. It could be an economic impact, it could be a business decision that you didn't make right. Like, what, what then happens and what's the personal responsibility you bear for that? So, you know, having said that, maybe start with you, Mr. Lubega. like, what structures are you putting into your business now or what sort of um, fail-safes or what sort of protection mechanisms are you putting in now so that when you do hit that speed bump or that, like, hard rock in the road that, that you actually, your business can sustain itself and that your people um, won't have to feel that impact?
1: So. I'm an actuary by training, so we're very much like risk mitigation, risk management. And I think the biggest way to future-proof a business is to make the circle bigger. To quote, I wish I knew the person who was a philosopher that said that. (laughs) But really, when you start a business, in bringing on, let's say, co-founders as an example, right? everyone has an idea, you know maybe eight type personalities, but how do you bring on like-minded individuals? So in in my business, you know, I have four co-founders, and the reality is, you know, when one of us is feeling down, the other one's feeling up, and that balance is almost at the core of what we do because we complement each other in that way, even beyond our skills. But I think then, you know, something which also makes you, I guess, less fragile is also scale. Because it's interesting, the bigger you get, the reality is, the less likely you are to go to zero, when you're at zero, to be very catastrophic. But it almost creates that because so many people depend on you. I mean, the reason why the big banks in the U.S. didn't fail is because there was a lot of things on the line in relation to that. And so thinking through our journey, saying how do we, one, build beyond our core markets so we're internationally diversified, and also think through the partners you bring on board in that particular journey so we actually are anti-fragile um, as a business. But then for me personally, and I think many of us may struggle with this as a certain phase in our journey was, at what point do you... Let someone else come in. So let's say, so in my business, I built up our go-to-market, scaled it across nine countries, and now you're meant to bring in a VP of sales, which you're like, but that's my core value in the business. And being mature enough to say, okay, I've created, I've created the pipes here, but how do I let the foundation for somebody else take to the next level in our business? And so for me, it was being intentional about succession planning and letting others shine as well in that process.
0: Excellent. And Mr. Mashaba, maybe taking the other side of that, what have you learned about trying structures or other things that haven't worked? Like, what have you learned from that? Because you've been one of the older Harambians.
3: Yeah, (laughs) I think in a business, if you haven't tried a structure that hasn't worked, you haven't tried enough things. Um, So I think the biggest learning from our side was just to really start, you know, make sure that from a team perspective, you ingrain the idea that, like, no structure is permanent fairly early in the company. Because that puts you in a position to try things. Because I think, you know, in our early days, every structure we changed to was the final structure we'd ever had. That was kind of like our communication to the team. We've we've figured this out, this is the structure, and nothing is changing in the company. And then six months later, you would learn something, and you'd have to change that. And I think we've had to now kind of build up to the point where we accept that every structure is just a tool for our strategy. Strategy is at the center of it, and we just keep trying different structures to solve for the strategy. And that orientation has made it so much easier. Everyone understands that, like, you know, at the end of the day, whatever we're structured as, we're sitting in what team, that's just in service of where we're trying to go as a business. So that's going to change if we need to change where we're trying to go or if it's not working. So just building that mental agility and not seeing a sense of permanence, right? Because there can't be. Like, things are going to change. You're going to figure out new things as you grow.
0: And that takes us straight to Ms. Ineo because I met you, I think it was in 2019, the first time. Um, and And I've sort of watch the business shape and grow, and and actually the environment in Nigeria has changed a lot, right, since we started the conversation. And so how do you build, when you talk about an agile business, how do you build for agility around external factors that you really have no control over that that really are directly impacting your ability to do your job? Um, And so yeah, how how do you build that?
2: Yeah, there's um, two things that I would say have contributed to our resilience, especially. Being candid, we were still an early stage company. We were planning on raising our seed January at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> and I had a board meeting, an advisory board meeting, and everyone's like, oh God, we need to like recalibrate and figure out what's going on, right? And figure out how to stay resilient through a year where we knew that it was going to be challenging. Um, there's a few things, and I know we talk about this as entrepreneurs, but I think it's always good to be reminded. It's really staying close to your customers and their problems. My customers kept us alive during a really tough year. Um, And when I say my customers, it's they knew we could solve problems that they had. We had the skill sets. We were constantly listening to them. As E had mentioned in his session the other day, it wasn't about a solution or an idea, right? As much as it was really thinking about what problems are they facing and how do we iterate and build very quickly to continue to support them and to stay a viable early stage company at the time. I think the other thing is um, you know, as leaders, especially as founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, it's very important, and this is why I love this, this space, it's really important that we always you know, be the leader, be strong, be focused, uh, feel confident, present a face of confidence. But the truth is one of the most important skills I had to have, and that I think founders should have, is the importance of knowing when to ask for help. And the key is the when. And so without knowing and having the advisory board, the community around me and then knowing when I needed to ask for insight or advice, it's really difficult to stay resilient. You don't have time whenever you're asking for help and it's a little bit too late. And so I think those are things that uh, can keep the companies resilient and that we have to stay focused on.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And I had the, um, the privilege, I will say, of being in a company that was acquired by Blackstone. And, and that's a double-edged sword for any of you who've had to <laughs> be part of that. Because they're ruthless, they're a machine. And they come in and there's no way they're not going to be successful if they take your company over. And they, they, they bought um, the Thomson Reuters division that I was working in for $20 billion and a year later flipped it for $27 billion to the London Stock Exchange Group. So they really have got an amazing formula. Um, but one of the things I learned very early on in my journey with them was that they come in and they ask you, the first question they ask you is not what's good about your business. But why is this going to fail? Let's sit around the room and talk about why it's going to fail. And so I'd like to ask each of you that question: this this amazing continent that we're all part of, that we believe in so deeply, that we know is rising. Why is it going to fail?
1: So. so I see the mics are <laughs> dropping, but not for And it's something which um, we were coming to briefly on our table earlier. I think it's okay to feed the hype and to benefit from the hype. And I think the only risk in doing that is forgetting the grassroots realities and the problems we're actually trying to solve. And I think it's a point that Ms. Nair mentioned now around the importance of staying close to your customers. Because as you raise capital, someone foreign capital, this is good for the continent, will have their own views of what should be done on the continent. And so how do you, as someone on the ground, interacting with your customers, how do you actually stay close to problems you're solving? And so, the biggest risk, I think, for us is, as we raise international capital, as we offshore our companies, as we do all these fancy things, how do we remain grounded? And I think that break will be the biggest source of failure. That's a great
0: one.
2: You can't underestimate the necessity of local knowledge and experience. I think earlier, when we were watching the video about the new Harambeans labs, uh, Relief's founder, I'm on a first-name basis, and Mr. Nzewe is going to kill me. Okay, I'm trying to go by last names here. He mentioned in his, in his talk that, um, you know, you can read the reports, right? You can look at the data, but until you're on the ground, until you're talking to people and your customers, uh, you, ha- you, you need to feel and experience things. Uh, as I mentioned when I was in my previous work uh, in the oil and gas industry, I used to have all my team. You have to have boots on the ground. You have to be in Cameroon, Chad, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea. You have to see things for yourself. And you have to use that to inform your judgments and what we should be excited about. And so I think it's important that we continue to have spaces like this where people who have seen what's going on on the continent, boots on the ground, can be evangelists to those who are getting excited around the world so that we can make the right calls, make the right decisions, and we prevent this failure that that could happen if we don't listen to, to people who are here. Love it. Mr. Machova?
3: Yeah, I mean, both, like, very, very good answers. So pr- quite aligned with my own thinking. Um, maybe picking something we haven't probably touched on now is, you know, at the end of the day, like, we spoke a bit earlier about the amount of capital that's coming into the continent at the moment, and capital chases returns uh, at the end of the day, and I think you know, if you look at, like, the South American ecosystem, they're kind of like on wave three because capital came, returns came, capital came again, returns came. Now capital's coming even more, and actually a lot of that capital is coming from the market itself at this stage, and now you've got massive IPOs like New Bank, And I guess the story has to pan out. The capital has to be returned. Investors need to make their income. Otherwise, there isn't people who are going to be willing to bet on this. And I think right now we're building continental story of execution where companies are going through multiple phases of execution and delivering on that. And this creates that confidence. But this has to be followed through by all the companies that are currently within the space and the new ones coming in. And that's what's really going to build the story. So for me, the thing that can fail is if all the capital comes in, but the returns don't. Because then the capital withdraws and we're back to square one and we have to build up again from the start. So I think it's really about just that making sure that all the companies currently doing stuff follow through and there are returns coming out of this so that the next phase can happen.
0: And I think you said something else in there that's really important, which is that the capital comes from within the continent, because I think we're all getting quite excited about the amount of foreign capital flowing in. There's use for it, but actually I think sustainability comes from um, capital within the continent. That's amazing. So I'm going to switch tack a little bit and and talk about um, sort of your personal sort of perspectives around um, business and resiliency. And um, there's an Aesop's fable around the ant and the grasshopper. And the grasshopper spends his summer playing the violin um, while the ant is busy gathering food. And the grasshopper's like, chill, dude. Like, why don't you like hanging out with me, play the violin? And the ant's like, no, no, I need to go gather some food. And during the winter, the grasshopper has no food. And the ant is sitting quite comfortably eating. And the grasshopper comes to the ant and says, can I have some food? And the ant says, no, thanks. I've..." Taken care of myself, please go away. So, so, if you had to make yourself sort of one of those characters, which character are you and why? <laughs> <laughs> I will start with Miss Aneo for this one.
2: <laughs> I'm a bit biased because I've trained in violin for over 10 years. <laughs> so, I want to say I'd be playing my violin all summer. Um, I mean I'm a mover, I'm a shaker, I've always liked being involved in building things so um, I think in in this scenario it's it's about building and it's about being ahead and you know again I'm sitting here and I just keep referring to this room here because I'm seeing people who are thinking ahead and planning for the future and putting in those building blocks to support the future of Africa that we're excited about. And so in that regard, I con- continuously want to challenge myself, whether it's in my current venture, or even in the work that I was doing outside of Shift, uh, to, to building and preparing for the future of Africa. How about you?
1: So I'm not as gifted in the violin, but the beatbox was something I was good at growing <laughs> up, so I can freestyle and rap. No spoilers for tonight. We'll be on the decks with Mr. Lula. Um, but I would. no one wants to be the person that's not thinking about the future. But I think something we don't do well in Africa is share our journey and our lessons learned. Um, so I was reflecting earlier. So we had a program called Y Combinator. And I was actually reflecting to Leslie earlier how a company called Blue Cruise, 12 months in, exited to General Electric or General Motors for... 1.2 billion, and it took us, whatever, six years to get there. And sometimes you will discount the achievements you've had because of the context you find yourself in. Yet by you sharing your achievements and your lessons learned in your journey, you're able to inspire others. And so I would liken playing the violin to be sharing what you've learned so that those around you can appreciate your journey and not keep it to yourself. I think it's easy to have an imposter syndrome. You know, many of us went to very good schools, you know, the Ivy Leagues and so forth, Oxford, Cambridge, and you meet phenomenal people, but don't discount even at your early part of your journey what your story can do for others. And so hopefully, maybe not a violent player, but definitely trying to beat to the right beatbox. I
0: love it. <laughs> Mr. Machova.
3: Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question, I guess. Uh, for me, I must say, like, it depends on the situation. Um, I'd probably say I spend a lot of my time being more like that grasshopper. Um, Maybe to the point where I'll probably starve like the ant because I actually will forget the food's there. I'll just keep hoarding it and forget everything's going on. But, you know, that's kind of my thing of just, yeah, like we're just kind of focused on, like, just getting it done, focus on the future all the time, and probably not enough time on, like, today. And that's something I'm always trying to, like, challenge myself to actually flip on and actually spend a bit more time being the ant. Yeah, it's actually, it's
0: funny... um, I, I think I'd probably be more like the grasshopper playing the violin, um, but I'd make friends with lots of ants so I could have something to eat <laughs> in winter. <laughs> so, so, yes, we've got a question. So, I don't know if we've got a mic there or other. a Mic.
4: It's really a comment and a point of gratitude. Thank you for sharing. I am a CEO founder myself, so I resonate with a lot of what you shared tonight. My name is Aline Siston, by the way. Um, what I found is You can only ask for what you think you need. So knowledge can be a limitation. And as an African living in the United States and now trying to re-engage with my country of birth, what I've found is once you bridge that knowledge gap, then people ask for what they need. And so so I found that useful in my own quest. And so I think um, I would love to engage with both of you after this forum just to get a sense of where that has taken you, if you've experienced any of that. And and in my example, for example, I had a limitation to technology and the use of technology. My first interaction with a computer was my last year of law school in Kenya, where we had one that we had to line up for to type our thesis, essentially, uh, because law school could only afford one computer. And then I went on to go to the US where I'm at this law school where they have so many resources, I was overwhelmed. Yeah? And so the rest is kind of history. But the point I'm trying to make is, uh, but still, I had this phobia for technology and how you integrate it as part of a system that enables you to be successful. So I also feel like there's much tec- matches. We have to so many tablets and phones. Just having the gadget and the hardware itself does not necessarily translate to the understanding and, and the knowledge of how that can affect your performance. Now, that being said, I traveled with my colleague, Augustine. And what he does, he is the world-class risk management consultant who's worked with some of the top companies in the world, essentially. He's sitting in the room, he's just boiling in his seat because he's so excited about what's happening in the room and what he wants to essentially, through his philanthropic efforts, provide for this group. He's willing and ready to engage and offer his services, essentially, for almost free. I'm sorry. Don't kill me. <laughs> but um, he, he's literally... Yeah take, it, take cool, yeah, take it. Yeah, he has an execution <laughs> risk model that he's developed that's been tested that's literally saving the lives of companies um, Amazing. in America. And I want that to happen for African companies. So talk about knowledge that you don't know, that you can take advantage of. And also, we're technically here. I won't give details on a fact-finding mission for projects that might require some sort of funding. Just putting it thank you here. so much. So two things I wanted to say. So knowledge, knowing that, and knowing how you can access it and benefit from it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'll engage with the three of you afterwards, because I'm, learn- I'm learning more from you. I would love to learn more from you. Sorry, what your perspectives are on whether there even is like competition right now on the continent, and as you guys are building, you know, these large-scale businesses, um, do you feel like there's enough room for everybody, and do you support other founders that you see who are trying to build similar things because there's still a lot of ground to cover, or do you, you know, see them as competition? Mm, good question.
3: Yeah, it's really good question. Um, to be honest, I think there's like so much open space that generally speaking, really don't see other businesses, other founders' as competition. Not because they're not good at what they do and not because at some point they won't be able to like be competition, etc., because there's so many businesses that are competitive in what they do, but I think more just because we're all chasing the open space. So it isn't at the point where it's like a churn game. No one's trying to churn each other's customers because there just isn't enough, right? There isn't enough customers already acquired. It's mostly about acquiring the one who's not acquired today.
0: Any other burning questions in the room? Oh, yes, we've got one over here.
1: So, Remy? Thank you, and thank you for sharing all that knowledge. Uh, so my question is, as you guys are building your businesses, and you're scaling and growing very, very fast, how are you ensuring that you're capturing value for yourself? I didn't share that, but sorry. So my question is, how are you ensuring that as you grow and scale and you engage with multiple investors and grow uh, your company, that you're capturing value for yourself as a founder? if I think I heard the question correctly... Capturing
0: value for yourself as a founder while you're growing the business.
1: I hope the investors in the room heard that, so we're selling in the <laughs> second piece. <laughs> um, please allow that through. Um, and I think it's, it's a very valuable point where, you know, and I think there are many successful founders in the room, so they'd appreciate this, right? At what point, and what does capturing value for yourself mean, right? So, for example, I have probably said the same thing for the last six years. I haven't changed much, to be fair. I'm same, still the same joker, primarily. But now because our company has done better or well, people actually listen to me more, for better or worse. I'm still not so sure where that lands. And I think I get lots of utility from being able to share our journey and the lessons learned because I cut my own purpose, but you know, we do lose hair because of like the journey of building a business. And so for me, I'm very big on, I get value from enabling others to make new mistakes and sharing those lessons learned. So that's where I get value intrinsically um, based on just the culture. Because I find, side note, in African culture, our parents don't often share their school fees in terms of the the things they did wrong. It's almost like study hard, read books, and you'll do well. And I find that hard because I'm like, but uncle, you know, surely you did something different than just those two. I've been doing that for a long time. And I find in more European culture, those lessons are learned. And so I get utility from that in that ability to influence others through my journey. But I think even... I think professionally and commercially, I think there are many ways for for one to capture value without necessarily taking away from the core mission. And I think it's something which people often don't speak about in the ecosystem around like, what does capturing value mean financially? I mean, everyone will tell you on the side, oh no, I want to sell out on the secondaries, my round's oversubscribed and all that good stuff. But I think for me, the biggest thing one faces is when you're building your own business, it's not about exiting your business because I would argue that the money is better placed in the business that you're growing because you're able to scale. So the reason why Berkshire doesn't pay dividends is because they can manage the money better than you can spending on other things. And so it's a function of backing yourself. And so the capture I get is the ability to actually reinvest in my business and the businesses I've started. And so that's how I think about it.
2: I would, like you said, there's two sides to this coin. There's the intrinsic value that you want to retain. And then of course, there's a compensation on all of that from being a founder. I never thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'm an engineer and researcher by background. I got started as an engineering PhD student at Stanford. And at the time, my advisor was telling me, you should leave so you can own your IP. Otherwise, Stanford's going to own your intellectual property. And I told him, "Like, I always wanted to be a professor. I never had a professor that looked like me, and I thought I was doing really important things in the space. I think a lot of the research that was happening at these institutions reflected the demographic of the faculty and the administration at those programs. So I said, "You know, Professor Levitt, this is where I'm going to have impact. And he said, Ugwim, can you tell me how many black female founders have raised over a million dollars? This is a, my white male faculty advisor. At the time, it was 12. And he said, there's more than 12 black female professors, I'm sure, in the United States of America. <laughs> so, I, I think you might feel that, that, that thing that you're trying to get at, where you're like, you know, I, the, the representation thing, you know. I think you can do that via entrepreneurship. And I think you can still do that because your work is tied to your research. You, you just love power and infrastructure. You're going to be doing the same thing in the real world. Trust me, it's better. So I said, okay, okay, And so I continuously get value personally myself from that work and knowing that, at a minimum, I was a a catalyst when it comes to thinking about the future of energy in Africa. And hopefully, I'll be sitting here in a few years as a unicorn as well, right? (laughs) And so when we talk also about the value as a founder, I want to speak a lot to the women here. I come to the table, and I quickly had to find advisors who said, no BS, you need to be ambitious, you need to be aggressive. When you see founders negotiating terms, negotiating their voting rights, seeing what they're doing on that cap table, you sit right there. I have a white male co-founder, but he said, don't bring him in. I want you to go in and I want you to demonstrate the value you add to the organization and capitalize that. Let that be reflected on the cap table and let every advisor, investor, and board member see what you're doing. This is not, I'm the first time, this is charity, investing me because I'm a woman. No, 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 no. Find the champions that will sit behind you, back you, and tell you what your male counterparts are negotiating when it comes to their terms, when it comes to their voting rights on that cap table. And, and soon, with 535 Ventures, we're gonna have many more female founders funded, right,
0: for the continent. <laughs> So I want I want to turn to sort of back to the more personal angle um, one of the things we don't talk about enough we, we mentioned um, sort of mr Vega asking for help and you know we've been through a really tough two years globally I think mental health is on everyone's mind as something um, that sort of we're all feeling like a little bit shattered right but everyone as resilient as you are it's been a really hard two years globally and now we're on the brink of another sort of big global crisis but self-help is not a spa treatment or a break. It's actually building a life for yourself that you don't need to escape from. And I think that that's never been more true because we're going to completely face, within it, within our businesses, <coughs> within the world, we're going to keep getting these barrages of things that hit us. And so, in what way are you building those self-help um, sort of mechanisms for yourself? And I'll maybe start with you, Mr. Lubica, and then go down.
1: there for a moment. <laughs> Um, and I love the point you mentioned um, around building a life that you're going to turn away from because something I often like to do is reflect on my calendar and how my time evolves over the years and I found that over the last two years I spend more time meeting with other entrepreneurs discussing things, problem solving things together and I really get happy from doing that like, and so for me it's always thinking through how do I do more of the stuff that enthuses me because personally um, My career goal is to create 100,000 jobs, and got a very long way to go there. But ultimately, my heuristic is around, I want to build businesses whose ideas are so exciting to keep me up at night, but I want to partner, invest in and advise businesses and entrepreneurs um, that I wish I was partnering with or I had started. And so in that journey where I'm at now is, so far I've invested in businesses for a long period of time over the last 10 years and done venture, but thinking through how do I be more intentional? Because to your point, it's about building that life that you don't have to run away from. And I get really excited by that process of thinking through business problems and backing young entrepreneurs and so forth who've been on a similar journey to myself. And so that's what keeps me, I think, on the balance. That being said, I've been known to go to too many massage days. So my mother, my mother turned uh, 72 weeks ago, and her and I have this thing where every two weeks we'll go for a massage or we'll have a masseuse come over. And so I'm very big on self-care, but I, that may just debunk the myth there. But I do like getting my back touched now and then.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent, Miss Um,
2: I might make this a bit difficult for the editing team, but like, I just don't give a damn what people think. And what I mean by that is self-care is doing what you need to do to re-energize yourself. And I'm not going to lie saying it on the record, my guilty pleasure is I watch Real Housewives in almost every franchise. <laughs> I watch it, it distracts me, it gets my mind off. I mean, you're zoned out. I mean, you're just watching these rich women live a life and you're like, oh, wow, my problems aren't that bad, right? And so, um, like, it's, it's fantastic. And I have no shame, and I mean, I tell the team, you know, they're like, oh, what book are you reading this weekend? I'm not, I'm catching up on the latest episodes of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. So, um, I, mean, but that, I mean, honestly, there's that. And then I think the other thing is like, as entrepreneurs and founders, I feel like things are sometimes so performative Right, like You have to be on social media, you have to be tweeting, you have to sound so wise all the time. You have to be on, that's exhausting. And so, I mean, there's a point in time some of my advisors were like, you need to tweet more, you need to tweet more, you need to, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm gonna tweet when I feel like it. And if people think I'm not like the most wise entrepreneur in the market, I'm not. Because guess what, sometimes those spaces aren't good for you, right? And you have to be able to say no and realize that's okay. And then lastly, I'll also say again, touching on the woman's side, Um, I've been in a long-distance marriage. My husband lives in Houston, I live in Lagos, right? So work-life balance, all that management stuff, it's insane, but um, I'm trying to create a new norm for my team, for my employees, where what it means to have balance with your families and your spouses and your partners and all of that, it's possible, and so I think being okay with kind of being the new norm and kind of going out there on a limb is fine as well.
3: So, yeah, you mentioned the idea of, like, build a life that you don't want to look away from. And it's kind of interesting because for me it's actually, like, I I tend not to want to look away from anything. Like, uh, my energy gets up, like, doing stuff. i like, I enjoy things. I enjoy businesses. I enjoy advising people in business. I enjoy spending time with the family, with the kids. What ends up happening, though, for me is my biggest trap is, like, I fill time right, and I end up with a lot of my time focused on stuff, and what I'm having to learn is how to not do that, and that's something that, like, you know, literally, like, just how how not to have the world's fullest calendar and how to create space, because even if I have a gap, I'll fill it with time to think, so then I've got thinking time in my calendar, so I spend that time thinking and doing that kind of stuff, so it's, like, trying to make sure that, like, I ritualize the idea of, like, look away and find the nothingness, like, don't be thinking, don't be doing anything, just do absolutely nothing and be okay with that.
0: I love that, and I'm trying to do more of that myself. So I know we're going to run out of time, so I will just um, quickly ask you guys to close on one thought, because we started with this idea of exuberance versus endurance. And so imagine that we're in 2052 at the Harambean Summit in Lagos, (laughs) and there are global journalists um, covering this, and they come out of, the, the summit, and they write a headline. And pick a paper of your choice that's writing a headline. And the headline starts, the Harambians create. Finish the sentence. So well, I will we newspaper, but that's not so. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And so, so uh, yeah, like, let's think about who wants to finish that sentence. I'll let whoever so wants to go first.
1: Harambians Create. create.
0: And, and thinking, and, and fill the rest of that with whatever you think success looks like. Um, Professor Sikochi challenged us to come up with what do we think the metric is of success.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess the Harambians create a network of entrepreneurs that has created generational entrepreneurial wealth on the continent. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be it for me. Woo, woo.
2: Putting me on the spot. This is tough. And coming off my last answer, I was going to say a Harambian created the first Real Housewives of Lagos. but <laughs> <laughs> That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Um, oh, man.
0: More ambitious.
2: <laughs> I mean, if I, I, I think the thing I probably, I'm more in my space, so I think the thing I would focus on is I'm going to change the headline a little bit. But A Harambian created the first truly smart cities when it comes to energy and infrastructure. Woo! <laughs>
1: Um, So, to pick up on what uh, Mr. Machoba said, I think it would be Harambians create a global revolution and I think there's something that's stirring here which is important and today I woke up this morning and I wore black and everyone thought I was making a statement against the Harambians but I think there are many revolutions taking place here and I think if we can capture what we do here and scale it to other ecosystems beyond the continent, I think that would be success.
0: Amazing.